Hi, welcome to episode 36 of the Expositors Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Neglia. This episode is an interview with my old boss, Andrew Stapira. Uh, we served together for a couple of years, and um, although he was higher on the org chart than I was, um, he was and he is a friend to me, and he continues to be a role model whenever I think of the pastoral ministry. Uh, in this conversation that you get to listen in on, we speak about what it means for the preacher to be a historian, a linguist, and a mystic. And I really hope you enjoy it. Usually, I mention the details and the dates of the upcoming training weekend at the end of the podcast, but I want to insert it here into the opening moments of this week's episode, uh, just to make sure that you get it on your calendars. So the dates for you to know and to remember is April 5th and 6th. The location is San Diego, California, and the speakers and the mentors that we have lined up um, are incredible. Here's, here's some. Uh, we have David Guzik, Brian Broderson, Pilgrim Benham, Nick Cady, Kellen Criswell, uh, Pete Nelson, Sean Stone, and on and on and on. Um, we have so many experienced preachers that can't wait to come and to invest in you and to help you grow in the craft and in your calling of sermon preparation and delivery. Um, there's all kind of details available at our website, expositorscollective.com. And, and on that site, there's a register page where you can put in your details, pay your nominal fee of 35 bucks. 35 bucks, can you believe it, <laughs> for all this? Um, and so do check that out. Um, there's links there for um, a nearby hotel that's giving a discount. And um, anyway, if you want to find your own Airbnb, if you want to crash on a friend's couch, um, you should come. You should come because this is going to be our best training weekend yet. But anyway, now, here is Dr. Andrew Stapira uh, speaking about the preacher as a historian, linguist, and mystic. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. Um, Andrew, how are you doing? I am well. <laughs> well, Andrew, you've been someone that I've been dreaming about getting on this podcast for a long time, and I'm really glad that our travel plans have overlapped and we're in the same place at the same time. Yeah, yeah, me too. So, Andrew, uh, you, as I like to say it, you used to be my boss. Um, why don't you let people know a little bit about who you are and how we came to know each other? Um, so, yeah, um, I was uh, pastoring the church in Cork that Mike now pastors. Um, started in, what, October 2002, and um, I think you came about a year later, was it? Or less, actually. It might have been nine months later. It was the summer of 2003. Yeah, so it was about nine months later, I'd say. Okay. Or eight months. And um, yeah, you came to what, stay for a short time, right? Just And then it kind of snowballed. and About a week or two. It said, why don't you stay a little longer and a little longer, and then why don't you go home, get married, and come back? Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, I... Um, yeah, I, I, I prefer to think of it more as uh, co-laborers and colleagues, not as um, one above the other. Mm. <laughs> um, but I suppose in a technical sense, I guess I was the pastor. But um, but yeah, no, it was great. I, I it was great having you there. Yeah, definitely. 
Well, cool. Well, thanks. <laughs> thanks for being a, a good boss. Um, so in, in the intervening years, um, I stayed put and then you've done a lot and gone to a lot of places. Um, what's, what's happened in your life since, uh, October of 2005 when you right. moved out of Cork. I still remember driving away from your front door in the early morning. Do you? <laughs> waving, waving goodbye from our oh. rental car. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so we, um, yeah, I had felt the Lord really um, leading me to go back to university. I had never done that before I went on the mission field. And um, yeah, so we um, did that, moved to New Zealand actually for three years, and I did a bachelor's in classics and um, also studied Hebrew at the same time. And then um, went over to England and did a couple of years there, uh, did a, a BA in Assyriology, um, which is kind of a Victorian way of saying ancient Near Eastern studies. Um, and then spent about two and a half years really sick, got knocked out with a severe, um, got, got a virus for a little while, um, and then got knocked out with a severe case of, of chronic fatigue and was pretty much housebound for a couple of years, um, stayed with my wife's parents who were, you know, who, uh, yeah, were great and, uh, to, to host us for that time. And then eventually the Lord kind of brought me out of that and, um, yeah, felt to him lead me to go back and kind of, I guess you'd say cap off the studies with, okay. with a PhD. So that's what I've just finished recently. Um, went back to New Zealand to the university of Otago and did a PhD in classics. Okay. So, yeah. And what was your thesis? Um, I made a new translation and wrote a historical commentary for one of the five primary sources on Alexander the Great, a guy named Diodorus Siculus, his book 17 of his uh, History of the World. <laughs> um, so he, he wrote around, say, 60 to 30 BC, so not too far off from the New Testament writers. So. Okay. Yeah. And I speak for us all when I say we eagerly await its publication. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Thank you for your contribution. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's cool. And from here, you're at a bit of a question mark right now, but not, you know, you want to be lecturing and teaching, right? Well, that's the direction that I'm heading in. Cause it's kind of like, I guess, logical next step and yeah. it feels like the right thing to do. So I've been throwing out as many applications as I can. Um, but, uh, we are open to whatever, if, um, if the Lord brings up something different, that's, that's fine with us. Um, so for the time being, I'll just keep applying and we'll see see what happens, but I'm looking forward to at least a few months of rest yeah. <laughs> before we move on to the next step. Okay. And so in the years that we first came to know each other, you were the, you know, consistently Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, if I recall, mm -hmm. um, teaching the Bible. And then you've even continued that to some degree, um, during the past 12, 13 years, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, we attended in New Zealand, it was eight years total that we lived there. We attended, um, an open brethren church, um, which was very much very similar to a Calvary chapel in style. The, I know brethren churches can vary country to country, but the one that we went to was quite similar to a Calvary chapel and, um, they had a teaching rotation. So they sort of, when they found out I'd been a missionary and a pastor, they kind of slotted me in from the first two months I was there and I'd teach on a regular basis in that rotation. So yeah, usually two or three at a time, a few okay. times a year. Yep. Fantastic. Well, going back to when I first kind of overlapped with you and was part of your church, I was just so um, consistently impressed um, and so thankful that I was part of a church that had like such great Bible teaching, <laughs> not just every once in a while. It wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> like, oh, that was a good one. Like they were all good. <laughs> um, so how, 
we'll maybe get some of the nitty gritty, but like, how did you get good? Did you start good? <laughs> um, what was your, what was the first time that you taught the Bible and was it, how did it go and how did you feel about it? And what was that process like getting started teaching the Bible? Um, I think the first time that I remember, um, I'm pretty sure it was the first time was, uh, while I was in Bible college, I spent the Christmas and new years of 99 to 2000. It was like late December to early February, I think, um, in Israel, um, with the Calvary chapel in Jerusalem and with the ministry for Zion's sake that, uh, operates out of there. I'm not sure if they're still going. I, I, I assume so, but I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> um, find out we, put a link uh, in the show notes. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I, I helped out there for that time and I got to teach, um, one of their sort of midweek kind of home group Bible studies. And, um, I think if I remember right, that was like the first time that I sort of did a long normal Bible study in front of a group of people, you know? Um, and I taught Isaiah 53 and, um, yeah, I think, I think it went well. I, I, I did really enjoy it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, it was. I think there was a slightly extra layer of difficulty, only because everyone for for pretty much everyone in the group except myself, my friend, the pastor, there was English was kind of a second or third language, mm. so I was having to keep it, you know, extra simple in terms of vocabulary. But but when you wanted to appeal to Hebrew words, that was easy because yeah, <laughs> most yeah. of them spoke Hebrew, which modern and biblical not necessarily the same, but still there's a basis there. So. Um, yeah, so that was the first time that I think. And when it ended, did you kind of feel good about it, or? Yeah, yeah, I think I did. Um, I'm trying to remember. I, I think I did. I think I probably was. You know, you, you sort of run things over in your mind, and did I say this clearly, or was this, you know, was this as good as it could be? But I think I was pretty satisfied with it. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, and I've never, I've never sort of had anyone uh, sort of mentor me in the sense of this is how you preach or this Hmm. is what you do. Hmm. I think that, um, I think it's been a real combination of just God's grace and his Holy spirit. And then I think he's just allowed me for a number of years early on in my early twenties to kind of just almost subconsciously glean from a lot of the pastors I had listened to. Okay. So, um, I grew up under Joe Foch at Calvary, Philadelphia. And, um, then with, um, then I was with Bob Caldwell and in Boise and then, um, I would listen to various preachers from different backgrounds. I listened to John Corson for a while when I was younger. And, um, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think now off the top of my head. Um, I discovered Don Carson when I was about 25, 26 and, mm-hmm. and I started listening to him and I, and I sort of almost felt like the Lord wove together a bunch of different styles. If, if you're familiar with those four guys, they're all quite different <laughs> and they're yeah, they very sure different. Are, yeah. And I, and I, and I noticed little aspects of each of them <laughs> in myself at times. And I think, um, yeah, I think it was kind of a combination of that, just sort of uh, God's grace and his spirit and, and just sort of gleaning from hearing people, yeah. listening to good preachers. I think it's one of the best ways to learn. So you've yeah. never taken a homiletics or a hermeneutics class? Um, no, not yeah. formally, not, no. Okay. Uh-uh. <laughs> no. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. So, but you have been classically trained or formally trained, not in... Uh, interpretation of the Bible and um, sermon preparation, but you've you're a, you know actual historian, right? right. So that's your training. <laughs> yeah. And as Bible teachers, we deal with history a lot, mm. and um, I think sometimes it could be said that we're a bit sloppy with history. Mm. And how can you help the young Bible teachers and new Bible teachers that listen to this? How can you help us to improve as like historians? Mm. And then also you're a, a, a kind of linguist. How can you help us to improve with like? linguistic stuff. Yeah. Um, well, I, I was thinking about this when, um, 
you know, you said that we, we wanted to talk about this. I was thinking about it. And, and um, I think the thing, one of the things that you'd asked me was, you know, to think about maybe ways in which preachers might yeah, be sloppy or ma- mishandle things or something like that. And, and I thought, you know, often I, could, I can easily sort of pick out ways linguistically that that happens. But I actually, there are some historically, but it doesn't seem to be quite as common. And I think, I think the reason might be because it's not actually always something that preachers pursue as much. Like I, maybe it's because it's not always as as common in their sermons. So say you hear something on on the Book of Esther, and you know you might you might give background on the Persian Empire they conquered this area, and maybe that's about it. You know, <laughs> and oh, there's sort of the oh. great king, and they have these great palaces, and then we move on to talking about the biblical text. And so um, there might not actually be that much said okay. in order to say, oh, here's a mistake, here's a so mistake. So we play it safe. Yeah, and I think and I think there's a reason for that. I think that, um, and I think, first of all, you need to divide New Testament and Old Testament. And I think it's because, um, I think there's a lot of really good resources for preachers from a Christian perspective that discuss New Testament background. I actually think that's quite well covered. Okay. Um, and I think, um, so I think that we I do actually tend to hear more background when it comes to New Testament things. It's Old Testament. Someone coming to say, preach the book of Ezekiel or preach, like I said, uh, Esther or, or, or talk about the book of Kings and talk about what else was going on. You know, who were these Kings up in Syria, you know, or who was, who was the, the Rabshakeh, you know, what was his, what was his deal, you know? Um, and, and I think, uh, it's because, and you can correct me if I'm wrong or whoever's listening can write and correct me. I don't think there's as many good resources on the background of the Old Testament um, from a Christian perspective. And um, I think it's because when you do get into studying the background of the ancient Near East, there are some clashes with scripture. There are some issues, um, particularly, say, chronological issues, you know, like, for instance, you have uh, high dates and low dates for the Exodus, you know, whether it's 15th century or 13th century, um, or if it even happened at all, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, I think you have things like that. Or um, if you read secular uh, archaeology coming out of Israel from the time of the kings, especially David and Solomon, um, the, the guy who's really kind of ruled that realm for the last couple decades, Israel Finkelstein. I mean, he's had an agenda from the time he was in graduate school to undermine the scriptures, and he's trained up a lot of the current generation of, of archaeologists working in Israel. And, and they, you know, he quite, quite unashamedly has this agenda to undermine scripture. And I think, therefore, if you go out to read secular resources, you're going to find things that clash and tell you about how there's no evidence for the United Monarchy. You know, there's no evidence for the building projects of Solomon and things like that. Um, and, but this is, I think, largely based on his presuppositions as opposed to the actual evidence. I mean, I've, I've actually heard him in an interview asked about evidence being found in Jerusalem for the city of David. And he says, well, let me say before I start talking about the evidence that I do not believe the Bible is a reliable guide to the ancient geography of Israel. It's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's not objective, <laughs> you know? Um, and so anyway, I think it's actually... I think that when it comes to the Old Testament, I, I am sympathetic to the fact that there's not a lot of solid resources that you can point to and say, this guy is equally well acquainted with the scriptures and the background of the Near East and has produced something very um, conservative and orthodox in its approach. You know, I mean, I think of someone like, like Kenneth Kitchen, who's a really renowned Egyptologist, and um, a lot of his work is excellent, really, really great. But um, 
if I if um, I'm I'm ninety nine percent sure he takes a low date for the Exodus, a very low date. And it just doesn't jive with scripture. But this is what he believes from having been an Egyptologist. This mm-hmm. is where he'd place it. And um, again, it's just that's that's an issue. So I, I wouldn't necessarily wholeheartedly recommend his work. And I can think of various other scholars where they, they based on their studies, they've compromised some aspect of biblical chronology or biblical narrative mm-hmm. or biblical history. And so... Um, I think when it comes to wading into the history of the Old Testament, I think it's both simple and complicated. I think on the one hand, it's simple because I would say, just just read, just read what's out there. You don't have to necessarily study and get a degree. Just read, you know, okay. and read the primary sources. Go out and read. Um, and, and you can access things like that. Like um, there are great resources. There's one called the ETCSL, the Electronic Text Corpus of Sumerian Literature, put out by Oxford. And you can read... A whole bunch of ancient Sumerian mythological texts and hymns and letters and wisdom literature all online for free. You can read that stuff and get a feel for what it sounded like, their literature, their their um, their mythology, just the way that they thought about the world. You can read that stuff and just kind of get a sense for it and see how the Bible fits in that world. Um, there's another great book um, by a guy named Benjamin Foster, um, who's an Assyriologist at um, Yale, and um, it's called Before the Muses. And uh, it's just an anthology of Akkadian literature. So you can read all kinds of mythological texts, again, wisdom literature, all kinds of stuff, and just see what did it sound like? What Mm. were the ways they were writing? And when you read that stuff, it actually, you start to see patterns and things that are reflected in the scriptures, that it really was a product of its time and of its world. Mm. And, um, And there are issues that some people raise with scripture. Maybe you've heard of issues of doublets in the Old Testament, you know, where you'll have things repeated again and again mm. in different passages. And, and you know, the German scholars back in the 19th century wanted to rip the Bible apart because of that yeah, and say, yeah. you read, you read Akkadian literature, you see doublets uh, pop up all the time, Sumerian literature. It's just, a, it's a, it's a Near Eastern thing. That's, that's not strange to anyone that studied Near Eastern. It's strange to a, a you know, a, a German source critic who's, who's yeah. only looked at the scriptures, you know, yeah. um, but it's, uh, who's come from a Western, you know, literature, uh, you know, that, that's his background, but it's not strange if you've read widely in Near Eastern literature. Um, so I'd say in one sense, it's simple. Read, read primary source stuff, just kind of go through it. The, the Perseus digital library has massive amount of classical sources. You can read anyone, you know, from almost from, 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 from the classical world, the Hellenistic world, the Roman world, um, and, and just get a feel for the things they were saying and, 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 um, their time, um, and there are great overview texts that you can read. To kind of, it kind of covers the history of, of, of the ancient Near East. But at the same time, it is complicated because there are these issues. There's issues of, of chronology and things like that, and um, issues in archaeology and how we interpret evidence that you're going to bump up against and you're going to hear stated in a matter-of-fact way. And not necess- unless you have a background in it, you're not necessarily going to be able to pick out that, wait a minute, okay. he, he's making a dogmatic statement about something that we actually don't know for sure. <laughs> um, and so there are some pitfalls. There are some landmines along the way you know, that you have to watch out for. But I'd, I'd still encourage, I'd just say, read, read the primary literature, you know, kind of become acquainted with it. And... Um, and try to find some overviews. I'll, I'll give you some links that you can put in there for Thank some you. overview texts that you can read that are good general introductions. Um, but yeah, it's definitely very, it's, it's, it's definitely worthwhile. Um, I think, um, to explore the history because it does just illuminate certain yeah. things, you know? Um, so it sounds like you're saying, and I want to put words into your mouth, go, go for but it. that, 
uh, many preachers aren't making mistakes historically because they're they're neglecting the history. Mm, I, I, and so I you'd encourage us to, do, to go deeper into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. As a linguist, <laughs> do you think that um, Christian pastors tend to be making the same mistakes, ignoring um, linguistic nuances? Or is there an overconfidence and we feel quite comfortable to be making dogmatic statements about, well, this Greek word actually means this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, always. I think always beware when someone says in the Greek it actually says because because the people that have translated your Bible and I'm talking about the solid sort of mainstream translations like your NIV, ESV, even King James, mm-hmm. um, that um, these these are people that translated it that way because that's what it says, <laughs> and because these guys these the, these people are are experts. I mean, they they weren't just sort of. They didn't just sit down with a Strong's and a Vines yeah. and a dictionary and yeah. just look up words as they went. I mean, these are people who are, who are experts in not just what the words mean, but what, what the grammar says, what it, how it works at a narrative level. I mean, they're, they're looking at the text um, with uh, a high degree of expertise. So, I mean, you can, you can trust your, your translations. And I think, um, yeah, it says what it says because that's what it says. And, and, and so I think there are very few places in Scripture where you actually need to appeal to the original text to make some point that's not obvious. Um, uh, I think that more than looking at words and at the original languages to unlock some hidden meaning, which is often how it comes across. Yeah. I think, I think more looking at the original text helps constrain your meaning and helps constrain your interpretation because you start to realize what the text can't say based mm. on the grammar mm. and the vocabulary. Okay. And I think that's the greatest benefit a lot of times from learning the original languages. Um, yeah, because, and I, and I think, yeah, I think the two mistakes do tend to be, like you said, either an overconfidence to say this, this, or this, or, yes. or a complete neglect and actually starting to read into the text things based on your sense of English idiom versus uh, maybe what, maybe what it says in, in the original, something like that. So, um, yeah, I, I, again, I think reading the original languages is, is one of the greatest benefits that I've taken from it is that it limits what I can say and it, it keeps you safe. I okay. think yeah. okay. it keeps you safe. Uh, now, uh, we, we mentioned this the other day, but so I, I, I preached yesterday, uh-huh. and you were sitting towards the back yeah. with your Greek New Testament. <laughs> How did I do? <laughs> so so we, we think that feedback is really important, the Expositors mm-hmm. Collective. We just think that it's great for, for preachers to um, have, I guess, constructive feedback. Yeah. And so to put you on the spot, like, was I historically accurate did i use the the greek language in a way that was um i guess true to the text mm-hmm. and how could i do better <laughs> i i think it was fine you you appealed to a couple of greek words um to the doulos and um why is it go oh exeke, uh, i think you the idea of echoing resounding um yeah no it was it was yeah i thought it was fine i didn't feel like you sort of um uh, abused the use of the Greek or, 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 or embellished too much. I felt like it was just, it was just, you know, a brief comment and it was enough. And, um, yeah, I, I think historically it was, it was fine. I think, um, the, the only thing I could think of was, uh, uh, geographically when you referred to the people of, of Achaia saying what's going on down there in Thessal- Thessalonica, Thessalonica is up from Achaia. Mm-hmm. It's up North. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I mean, potentially. Thank you, thank you for not objecting at that point. I really appreciate it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, potentially, the only thing that could could 
maybe further been talked about maybe the Macedonia Thessalonica. I mean that there's a lot of history between those two places. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but no, I think everything was, yeah, it was fine. Well, yeah, thank you very great. much. <laughs> well, I, I, you are a historian, you are a linguist, but you also are a mystic <laughs> and I, I have not, not self self-proclaimed. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've proclaimed you as, as a mystic and from working with you for, for years, I, I know that you are a man that is very, um, I guess, dependent upon God, the Holy Spirit, um, very much given towards um, prayer and sustained prayer. Um, how, how does, I guess, that aspect of your relationship with God factor into um, sermon preparation and even delivery? Hmm. Well, um, I think that, um, I think as, as preachers, as teachers, we have to be careful of the fact that we we can put together a bible study like we can put together three points and we can put together application like in a sense we can do that without the lord mm. um we can figure out a formula or a format or maybe naturally we're just good at explaining things in a certain way and we 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 can do that without him and i think in a way every time i come to prepare I'm, I'm a little scared of the fact that like, I'm a little Mm -hmm. scared and a little cautious of myself that I could just grab this thing, sink my teeth into it and put it together and do it. And so, um, I try to often when I prepare, I, I actually try to really, I read the passage lots and lots of times and I pray and I'm often asking the Lord to, to highlight something before I've kind of broken it down into points and application and done things like inductive study or this or that, I'm often asking him to just sort of lead me by his spirit to something that he might want to say something for this church, you know, something for this group that I'm Mm. speaking to. I'm asking him because I feel like I want every time I speak to be um, in engagement with the Lord. Like I want people to interact with the Lord when I teach, I don't want them to just hear some points. I don't want them to be able to write down something and go out and apply it. Yeah, that that's great. Mm. But at the same time, I want them to have felt like the Lord met us in that place, you know? And, and, um, and I think that that grows out of you having met the Lord in your study time, you know, and you having kind of cultivated that sense of his presence, that sense of his leading. And, um, and I feel like I, I, I often think of it like, um, the, um, there's the three statements that run through the Song of Solomon where, um, where the, the, the woman says, um, she says, my beloved is mine and, and I am his. And then um, a little bit later, she says, I am my beloved's and he is mine. Mm. And a little bit later, you get to the, to the end and she says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. And there's kind of this sense in which all of her involvement has kind of been lost by the end of the book. She's gone from her possessing him kind of being the first thought on her mind to him possessing her being the second thought to the end. It's him possessing her and his love for her being all that she's consumed with. And I think in a way, every time I prepare for a sermon in a way, I guess not to sound too mystical, I sort of want to go through that process where I, I reach the point where I feel kind of lost in the sense that this is God's thing and not my own, that this is his word. This is his message and not my own. And so I can't really give you, I can't really necessarily say practically do steps A, B, and C. Sure. I, I think find, you know, find the way to, to meet with the Lord in those times, find the place you can go to pray, to just kind of lose yourself in seeking the Lord, find, find the environment, the time of day or night. Personally, I like 
the middle of the night, um, but um, find that find that time and that and that place and seek the Lord and wrestle with it. And in a sense, like she says, when you read through Song of Solomon, you know, I found him and I didn't want to let him go. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly he's gone, and I went through the streets, and she got beat up just to find him again and hold on to him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the process of preparation: is I want to get to that place where I feel like the Lord, the Lord is here with me. I know he's, I know he's always with me in the theological sense, but I want to get that sense that like we're in this together and I'm, I'm walking with him and I want to, and I want to, and I want to hold on. And I, but I want to get to the point where I know that he's, he's holding on to me and he's got this and we're going to do this. And, and I think that's so for me in a lot of ways, that's primary. Like I, I have spent time praying and wrestling to get to that place of sort of release and confidence I'll be honest, I've gotten sometimes to Sunday morning and I've had nothing written down. I've had no notes written down. I've, I, I, I think, I think one of the, one of the best sermons I've probably ever preached, I had, I was teaching, um, Romans chapter three and I literally can't, I, no, no joke. I literally showed up with my Bible, a piece of paper in it with the word propitiation written and underlined. And that was it. I had no more notes. Yeah. And, and it was because I just had spent so much time. I spent so much time preparing and praying and I hadn't actually felt confident that I'd really gotten to that place. And so I didn't want, I didn't want to just throw down a sermon. I didn't want to just write stuff down. So I thought, well, Lord, you know, I've got to speak to these people. Like I can't cancel, you know, yeah, I'm doing yeah. it. And so you're going to have to do something. And I mean, went through worship and, and I just went and got up there and it wasn't until I actually got up to the pulpit and I prayed for the start of the sermon and I just felt like I could start talking and I started to just go through it and it just came out <laughs> and I felt like I got to the, you, you know, those times when you're preaching and you start hearing yourself and you're like, this is really good. <laughs> and, and I thought, wow, that's, this is, and it was actually one of the shortest sermons. I don't know. You probably remember from Cork. I, I can talk for they're a not always short. <laughs> they're not, they're not always short. Yeah. Um, this was probably only like 32 minutes or something like that. And, and then I hit, and it was like, it was like a, a faucet, you know, had been turned on. And then I got to this point and I, I remember sort of reaching this climax and this point, And then it was almost just like it shut off. And I think that's another thing when we're walking in the spirit, when we're trying to sort of preach, from the Lord's leading is that we need to be ready to end it when he's ready to end mm, it. Okay. And, and I've found that sometimes even in sermons where I've had a series of notes written out and I've had sort of application and things like that. I, I've reached points in the sermon where, where if my main goal is to stay in step with the spirit and not to necessarily just deliver everything I've prepared, I've actually reached points where I felt like, you know what, you need to stop now. Like this is, this mm. is enough. Mm. And I think um, to be willing to let go of it, just as in preparation, you're wanting the Lord to take it and take you and you don't want to put your hands on it too tightly. I think even in the delivery of it, you don't want to keep your hands on it too tightly. You want to be willing to let the Lord sort of break in, in a sense, in your spirit and to say, wait a minute, I just feel really hesitant about it. I'm not actually sure if we should finish or if we should go this way or that yeah. way and be able to let it go because you have no idea how the Lord's working in the hearts of the people that you're speaking to. And you have no idea how many times do people tell you, wow, this point really blessed me. And you're like, that was a point in my sermon. I forgot I even said that. <laughs> that wasn't the main point, yeah. you know? And I think that's, it's so powerful that, that, um, that he does that. So, so if I can, if I can quote Bruce Lee, <laughs> I was actually going to say, do you have any, any Bruce Lee quotes, Andrew? <laughs> um, who you don't think of too often in the context of preaching, but I love his statement where he talks about be water, you know, and he says water can flow or it can crash, you know, be 
be water. And I think it's the idea, you know, he was a big thing into his thing was don't get stuck on some form, you know, and some structure. And I think in a way, when, when you're preparing and you're preaching in a sense, be, be free. It's great to have structures. It's great to have that guidance and that wisdom of, of all of the men whose shoulders we're standing on, who've preached amazingly for, for generations. But at the same time, be, be loose, be free for things to change, be free, uh, seek that communion with the Lord first and foremost, I think, because if you want the people you're speaking to, to experience that you have to have been with the Lord in your preparation time. Um, yeah. Well, that's good. We use language a lot in the expositors collective about, um, landing the plane, mm. um, that, you know, that we have our introduction, we, we go somewhere and then it's important to land mm. and that a lot of sermons that would have been good actually just become a waste of time because there's no conclusion. There's mm. no end. Whatever kind of punch or vitality that you had it just gets diluted by the last 10 minutes and mm. just, mm-hmm. and another thing, yeah. and there's this and there's yeah. that, but just to kind of land the plane to conclude it. That was good. So mm. on that note, we're going to land this podcast. <laughs> okay. um, so thanks so much. I'm really glad to be in the same country. It's with you. It's good. Yeah. I'm glad that I have this. I'll probably listen to this later on <laughs> just to enjoy the pleasure of your company. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening. You know, please keep your ratings and your reviews coming. I do appreciate them. Uh, They help our little specialized niche podcast uh, to grow. And as always, if you leave a review, please get in touch via social media and uh, I'll mail you a sticker. So as always, we hope that this podcast and all that we do at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal Bible study and your public proclamation of God's word. Have a great week.